think one of the silliest ideas that's being mooted about today is the correct approach is always in the middle, which if one thinks of motorists, a motorist who spent most of his time driving down in the middle of the road uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be likely to survive very long. And I think when we look at a lot of the important issues in life today, such as abortion, one could say there's an extremist uh, liberal position that everyone should be allowed to have abortion on demand, and there's the extremist Catholic position that abortion should never be allowed. And then you have the moderate position in the middle that you should only have an abortion where there's a good reason to do so. But as we see, the uh, truth actually there lies in an extremist position. And uh, where, where the church is concerned, there are very many positions that, where we have to be extremists, such as if we really believe the Church of Christ and the Catholic Church are identical, there, there isn't any middle-of-the-road position there. I note in the tablet today, they, they mentioned that uh, Vatican II got away from the idea that uh, the Catholic Church is the Church of Christ, which it actually didn't at all. But uh, I, th I think there's a good deal to be said for extremism. And uh, I'd also like to warn you, when I begin, it will seem that much of what I say doesn't have a great deal to do with uh, Vatican II, but I hope uh, it will all become clear why as I proceed. I want to, I want to begin uh, in the year 1973, when some of you might remember there was an absolutely horrendous book published called Choices in Sex. It came from Ealing Abbey, of all places, and it was in a series called the Living Parish series. Where these living parishes are, I don't know, because most parishes are dying at the moment. But uh, it's it stated, among other things, that uh, God is present uh, whenever a prostitute tries to give her client good value for money. It prays the courage of single girls who have the foresight to be on the pill or be fitted with contraceptive devices. And uh, it was recommended to all the schools in the Westminster Archdiocese by Father David Constant. And it was recommended to all the schools in the Liverpool Archdiocese by Father Anthony Bullen, who's somewhat moved from the limelight lately. Now, Father Constant, he was in charge of an organisation called REC. Oh. <laughs> yes. It's the Westminster Religious Education Council, which actually wrecked Catholic education in Westminster, so it was very appropriate. And apart from recommending this dreadful booklet, Choices in Sex, he sent a circular around to every school in London telling them that the catechism was totally unsuitable for Catholic children of any age at all, which was rather naughty because the, all the Catholic bishops of this country just reissued the catechism in a slightly revised form, and that was his answer to that. <coughs> He also took place in what is now, uh, I think, fittingly known as the notorious International Catechetical Congress in Rome in 1971, when a group of progressive catechists from a number of countries got together and uh, rather humiliated Cardinal Wright. They, they were very well organized, took the whole Congress over. One particular point on which they embarrassed him was that of having whether you should have First Communion before First Confession. And one point uh, Father Constant greatly stressed was he, as a religious education advisor, was in touch with parents, and the parents all wished to have First Communion before First Confession. Uh, some people here I recognize were at a 
meeting held in London uh, some months later, which Father Constance spoke. And we were all in these little uh, seminars. Uh, uh, and I was in the one with three other teachers in which he was presiding. So I asked him about this. I said to him, Father, when you were at the Catechetical Congress in Rome, you mentioned that uh, you're in touch with the parents, and the parents all want First Communion before First Confession. Now, I've been teaching in a primary school for many, many years, and I have yet to meet a single parent who ever expressed such a desire. Where did you meet these parents? And he hummed and hawed for a while, and then he admitted he never had actually met one, but he had heard there were such parents. Uh, and uh, I just mentioned that there might be some people here who've heard of a very, very good priest, a Father Cyril Wilson. Uh, he'd probably be very annoyed at me mentioning this, who was parish priest at uh, the Church of St. Francis of Sisi at Pottery Lane, who had had the temerity to oppose Father Constant on the deanery council uh, on the matter of catechetics. And within a week of being made a bishop, Father Bishop Constant, as he then was, went straight to Father Wilson's church, pre preached at all his masses, that was his excuse for going, then had him up the next day, said he was very dissatisfied with the way he was running his parish. He had to make all sorts of changes, and if he wouldn't, he could go. So Father Wilson resigned and went, and that was his thanks for being, I believe, a parish priest for about 45 years. Uh, Bishop Constant sent him a very effusive card, which I was told Father Wilson promptly ripped up. <laughs> Well, I want to bring us on 12 years later to 1985 uh, to the story of another book, which I believe Father Clifton's already mentioned to you today. This book is called Our Faith Story. It has a somewhat enigmatic cover. There are two somewhat strange-looking young men on it and a young lady. They seem to be outside a cafe in Paris. I see the young men are drinking beer and the young lady is drinking wine, and there's a, a missing young lady somewhere else. Uh, now, this book uh, is written by Father Patrick Purnell, who's National Advisor for Religious Education to the Bishops of England and Wales. He mentions in it that it owes a great deal to another book, a book produced by a Catholic uh, committee headed by Bishop David Constant, who uh, Bishop Constant was then, of course, the Chief Episcopal Commissar for Religious Education. So the book is based on ideas by Bishop David Constant. Uh, it has an imprimatur by no less a person than Bishop David Constant. <laughs> and it has an effusive preface by David Constant, uh, who informs us that this is one of the most real books about how people grow in faith uh, that I have ever read. Uh, which is a very good example of George Orwell's 1984 Newspeak, because grow, in fact, uh, means to destroy. Because when Father Purnell is finished with the faith in this book, there's very little of it left. Uh, on a first reading of the book, I'm going to read it again, as I hope to review it for Christian order. I was unable to discover concern for any life but that of this world. I noticed no reference to heaven, hell, purgatory, to Our Lady, the saints, angels, to Satan, to original sin, the sacrificial nature of the mass, Eucharistic adoration and devotion, penance, asceticism, the divine foundation and constitution of the church, or the necessity of the membership of the church for salvation. 
I'm just going to read you a couple extracts. I hope they won't be the same ones that Father Clifton read to you to give you an idea of what the book uh, says. He, he mentions authority. He says, during the last 20 years since the Second Vatican Council, I have lived through a revolution. Well, I wouldn't argue with him about that. <laughs> the council has enriched my understanding of the church immeasurably. It has thrown new light on the religious knowledge I received in my younger days and has helped me to see that there are very many different ways of looking at the church. There are, of course, right ways and a lot of wrong ways. Uh, Take authority as an example. As I noted above, I thought of the Pope, bishops, and priests as having a very special relationship to God, which resulted in their having specialized knowledge and endowed them with powers and authority over the members of the church who were their subjects. The role of the subjects was to obey, and in obeying they submitted to the will of God. However, and this is since, since his understanding has been enriched by the council, however, there is another way of looking at authority which takes into account not only the presence of God's spirit in those who have authority, pope, bishops, and priests, but also in the subjects. In this understanding, the bishop, for example, sees himself as discovering the will of God with his subjects. Bishops and subjects listen to each other and pray together as a way of finding the way forward together. He does add, though, that he says uh, that this, he doesn't want us to believe that this newer approach to authority, it's not a new approach, actually, it's, it's, it's what is known as modernism, uh, uh, which a lot of you will know quite a bit about, uh, that this newer approach to authority is already firmly established in the church. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that this approach to authority has been emerging in the church as a result of the thinking about the church stimulated by the Vatican Council. There is still a long way to go for it to be universally accepted and implemented. Much work needs doing in order to make it a reality. Uh, he also, on pages 48 and 49, he ha has something to say about the priesthood and the laity. He never, of course, says the priesthood, the ministry. The ordained ministry is called to serve the community by celebrating sacramentally the daily experiences of people who are trying to live out the gospel. Uh, and, uh, yes... The ordained ministry is called to serve the community by celebrating sacramentally the daily experiences of people who are trying to live out the gospel. And then he says, the ordained ministry leads them to celebrate their daily lives sacramentally so that they may come to have a deeper and richer understanding of what they are doing. LAUGHTER uh, uh, Sunday Eucharist, ideally, should therefore be the weekly get-together of those who are trying to continue Christ's work. Uh, and he mentions, of course, this has implications on the way we celebrate the liturgy. And on page 67, he, he comments, If the community thinks of God as first cause, prime mover, infinite in all perfections, etc., a very stylized form of worship will tend to emerge that in words and actions must always be done in a certain ritualistic way. The resultant liturgy allows for no alterations. Change the image of God, and immediately the form of worship is changed. 
what we need to remember is that we proclaim the kind of God we worship through our liturgy. The kind of God we proclaim, we reflect in the way we worship. Uh, which I think is absolutely true. And we're speaking here about uh, two types of liturgy for two totally different religions. On uh, page 57, he has a rather interesting view of salvation. From the beginning, God intends everyone to reach the fullness of what God means by being human. This is salvation. God wants us to become fully and completely human in God's sense of what it is to be human. This is salvation. Salvation, therefore, means becoming fully human. Uh, you'll notice he keeps saying, uh, he keeps saying God uh, because uh, he won't ever use the prona- a masculine pronoun to deal with God because he's very, very respectful to ladies. Actually, I think he's very insulting to ladies. He thinks uh, women are so stupid, they're going to upset, get upset if you refer to God as he. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's at all complimentary. Uh, here's a little, a, a little section here where he gets really tangled up. Uh, actually, the whole thing is totally loony. Uh, just, just see if you can make this out. The corollary of the above is that God discloses something of God's self within the life and being of every person on the face of the earth. God speaks within the human heart as each one struggles to deepen his, her hold on his, her experience of life. So each one opens his, her heart to God, disclosing God's self. On uh, page 59, he, he has something to say about uh, revelation. Uh, of course, when he was young, he thought revelation was a great package of knowledge about God brought into this world by Jesus once and for all and handed down to the church to preserve through the centuries. But, but he, he doesn't think this anymore. He's now realized that God is always disclosing God's self through people's experience of life. Revelation, I came to see, is a process which is happening in people's lives and goes on and on. Looking back, therefore, over my own life, I see how God has been at work in it, making God's self known to me through my experiences. And uh, he has a little word to say about our Lord, uh, that uh, Jesus had no hotline to God. He was sensitive to God with a human heart and a human mind. He had to work out the implications of what it meant to be human, of what it meant to have life and to have it to the full, uh, which mo- most of what Father Purnell has been saying, uh, th- those who ever studied modernism, you'll recognize it as straightforward modernism. It was condemned by Pope St. Pius X at the beginning of the century. Now, what's very interesting, this man, as I said, he's the National Advisor to the Bishops for Religious Education. And apparently, the, all the religious education, all our Catholic schools, is going to be based upon this book. Uh, and if, if what I've read so far uh, seems uh, strange, uh, listen to this bit. The, the, whole, the, the, the climax of the book is that you can't have any religious education anymore because it impinges on, on, on the dignity of the children because in our schools today we all have children from families who are lapsed and they're a kind of captive audience 
So if you actually teach them that something is true, that uh, after the consecration, the bread and wine truly become the body and blood of our Lord, you're, you're, you're interfering with their individual freedom. You have no right to do that at all. Uh, this is, you, you might think I'm exaggerating. Here are his own words. The very nature of education involves the freedom and dignity of the pupil. Its concern is how to help pupils develop their full potential as human beings. This dignity and freedom is threatened where the pupils are told by an authority which they are taught to accept and respect by the cultural context of their lives what to believe. Education, to be true to its nature, cannot tell people what to believe. All it can do is to say what people do believe. Teachers can help pupils understand what Catholics believe. They cannot make them believe it. Hence, the classroom is not the right setting for deliberately evangelizing pupils, nor is it the place where catechesis normally occurs. Uh, which is all very strange because he's made up a new religion and says, in the end, anyway, you needn't, uh, you needn't teach it. Uh, well, I, I think this really proves what uh, I think Canon Telford, who many of you have heard of, he was really Father Purnell's predecessor. And he said, I've quoted it in this little, this little book, uh, which I believe they're selling here, what was happening about religious education in Catholic schools. Canon Telford said, modern catechetics is theologically corrupt and spiritually bankrupt. Its structures and innovations are irrelevant and unmeaningful for the Catholic faith and can achieve nothing but its gradual dilution. The authentic renewal of catechesis will come not from them, but from the faithful. And he, he resigned as religious advisor to the bishops because he couldn't find any bishops in the country who would give him support in trying to have a little Catholic uh, doctrine taught in Catholic schools. Now there's going to be a digression, but I hope you're going to see later it, it, it's not really a digression. Last Friday, as some of you know, the 11th of October, it was the Feast of the Motherhood of Mary. And with some other people I recognize here, I was up outside the new Metro Cinema in Rupert Street off Shaftesbury Avenue, where they're showing this film, Hail Mary, and about 200 to 250 Catholics, led by Father Clifton Father Thwaites, said a rosary of reparation. Well, why should Catholics want to say a rosary of reparation when people are making a film about Our Lady. We could begin by quoting the Pope, and the Holy Father said, this film distorts and reviles the spiritual significance of the mother of Jesus. I notice in the reviews in several of the secular papers, for instance, in the Daily Telegraph, they said uh, that this film is likely to offend Catholics, uh, what do they say? Here we are. Offence may well be found in the many somewhat gratuitous scenes of Mary naked and even more in the number of four-letter words used looking very ugly in the subtitles. Uh, the Times, much to my surprise, which is rather liberal, comes straight out and admits that, this is a, that the film is pornographic. But he says it's a cut above the usual run of soft core. Uh, and he thinks if there is any spiritual object in the film, this seems to be secondary to the object of photographing the winsome Miriam Roussel's pubic regions from as many interesting viewpoints as possible. Uh, 
Father Purnell, however, <laughs> went to see the film together with a Mr. Nicholas Coote, who I believe was formerly Father Nicholas Coote and is now uh, employed as some sort of secretary of the hierarchy. I believe Mrs. Coote would like me to mention he's no relation. Uh, he says, it's deeply respectful. Uh, they, uh, they, they've stuck to the story. And uh, that was what Father Purnell said. And, and Nicholas Coote said, I don't find it at all offensive, though it may be upsetting for some people's religious makeup. When I next see Cardinal Hume, I shall inform him there is nothing to worry about. Uh, Card- Cardinal Hume, he said he's uh, very glad that an important truth about the virgin birth is being taught in this way. But he regrets if there are things in it which are unacceptable. Now, a very interesting aspect of the film uh, is that it was sponsored jointly uh, by something called The Other Cinema and The Month, which you may know is the official publication of the Jesuits. And the editor of The Month, Hugh Kay, went along to see it. And uh, he was interviewed on the BBC Today Sunday programme last week, and apparently the film practically moved him to ecstasy. And... Uh, when he, yes, yes, when he was contemplating this delectable young lady in the bath, uh, where she was depicted at great length, uh, he, he, he found himself reciting the joyful mysteries of the rosary. Well, well, I, I think really that a man who can react to a scene like that in, in that way, he must have a very great level of spiritual detachment. And, but, uh, On the tablet, I I just got a copy of this week's tablet on the way, and the tablet film correspondent says, this film is scandalous only if you're frightened of a new experience, which has some interesting implications. Well, some of you, you might be wondering what all this has got to do with the subject of my talk. And uh, the answer is that the instances I've just been given you provide concrete examples of the fruits of Vatican II in practice. The fruits of the council can be seen in the devastation and degeneration of Catholic life that is evident all around us. We see liturgical degeneration in almost every parish. We see moral degeneration epitomized by the Catholic support for this film and the lack of Catholic support from Mrs. Gillick, who certainly has had no support public support from Cardinal Hume or the hierarchy, and I'm very glad she said so this week, and the bishops have had the temerity to come out and say they've been with her all the way. How they've got the nerve to do that, I just don't know. We we see degeneration in the religious orders, degeneration in the seminaries, degeneration in the religious education given in our schools. Now it could be objected, and rightly so, that none of this degeneration was mandated by the council and that the very idea of such degeneracy would have filled the Council Fathers with horror. This is true. The Council documents do contain a few ambiguous phrases, put in them by the experts who drafted them, in in the hope of using them after the Council. But in general, those who are responsible for the current degeneracy would not be able to cite a single conciliar text authorising their favourite aberrations. Just to give one very quick example would be the uh, degeneration of liturgical music, which much of the music heard in our schools today uh, 
seems to be a cross between a discotheque and the song sung at a Trotskyite rally. Uh, but that has nothing whatsoever to do with the council, which actually ordered that Gregorian chant was to become the norm for masses, sung masses in all our churches. In point of fact, Gregorian chant has practically vanished. Now, I'm not going to go into the background of the council here or, or what happened or why I think it happened, because I know a number of people here will, will already have read my book, Pope John's Council, and I do actually have several pages of it in this uh, Anthony Roper Memorial Lecture, which you can get here. If anyone wants to ask anything about it afterwards, I'd be glad to answer it. The reason I'm not going to talk about the council is because, in a sense, the council and the council's teaching are both irrelevant. They're de passe. We're not living with a council. We're not living with the teaching of the council, but we're living with the so-called spirit of the council in all its obscene reality. And I really do mean obscene. Can anyone find a more accurate description for a state of affairs when the National Advisor for Religious Education in England and Wales tells us that a film a pretentious example of voyeurism set to classical music in which the mother of God uses foul language and is depicted naked in a bath is anything less than obscene or is anything less than scandalous in the strict theological sense of the word. This is the reality of what has come about as a result of the council. This is the reality with which we have to live. Now, I think perhaps the most important effect of the council is the concept of collegiality. Now, there is a correct idea of collegiality. The, the, the college of bishops is all the bishops throughout the world in union with the Pope. And each bishop rules what is technically known as a church. Each diocese is known as a church with the, with the bishop uh, ruling it. If you read the book of Revelation, you notice he, he, that St. John sends messages to the churches in different places. So each diocese is a church. But there's no theological basis whatsoever, as Cardinal Ratzinger has just pointed out, for a National Episcopal Conference. For purely matters of convenience, a group of bishops might like to come together and make a pronouncement on some important issue like condemning Goddard's film Hail Mary. <laughs> it would have been nice to have had all the bishops in the country do that together. Or making a statement at the beginning of Mrs. Gillick's campaign, expressing the total support of the hierarchy. Or when the abortion law was first muted, to come out with a public concerted attack against that. But it's purely a matter of convenience. Each bishop is the totally independent ruler in his own diocese or rather he used to be. But what has happened as a result of the council, and Cardinal Ratzinger has pointed this out, that the bishops now tend to act together collegially as a National Episcopal Conference on all important matters. And once they've had their majority vote, individual bishops are unwilling to go against the consensus opinion. Now that's the, the Cardinal Ratzinger is very, very wise pointing that out, but he's speaking with the benefit of hindsight. He said this in 1984. What I find very interesting is that Archbishop of Fevre said exactly the same thing during the Second Vatican Council, and he warned the bishops in an intervention. 
He said, you think you're going to get more power as a result of collegiality. But he said these exact words, but you are going to lose your power as individual rulers in your own diocese, and you won't just lose it to the Episcopal Conference, because the Episcopal Conference is going to be manipulated by a handful of bishops. And those bishops themselves are merely going to be tools of their theological advisors. And that is exactly what has happened. And it was very perceptive of him to notice it to actually during the council. The truth of Archbishop Lefebvre's prophecy and the state of affairs which Cardinal Ratzinger has now condemned uh, was made uh, very, very clear. Uh, I might say a little about this later. In the response of our bishops to the archic documents, which I think should truly be called the archic betrayal of the, uh, of, of the Catholic faith on the Eucharist ministry and authority. It was written largely by Father Edward Yarnold, I believe. I, I should think some bishops had hardly even looked at it, but not one bishop spoke out against it. Only one bishop, Bishop Gordon Wheeler, refused to sign it. And that is now supposed to be the opinion of all the bishops in this country. Uh, and it's, those archaic documents really can accurately be described uh, as, as anti-Catholic statements. So there must, I'm sure there must be a few bishops who, who would disapprove of these archaic documents, but you won't ever now hear one word against them by a single bishop. And again... Uh, the reality of, of the abdication of the individual bishop's power is seen in the submission for the November Synod. This submission, which some of you may have read, the tablet published it in full, it was set within the context not of the reality of the state in which we're now living, but within the context of the myth of Vatican II. Well, what, what is this myth? Well, the myth of Vatican II is that the council heralded a new Pentecost, before the council, we were all living in a ghetto. That's a very, very popular word now. We're, uh, we're living in a ghetto. Now we've emerged from our ghetto, and we're being renewed. And we are now outward-looking, onward-marching, forward-looking. We're dialoguing, ecumenicizing. We're being relevant, being meaningful, becoming fully human. Very popular phrase now. We're becoming community. That, that, that's... That, that, that's more popular in the United States at the moment, but you'll be hear, hearing it over here. Yes, if any of you go to parish councils, you could start using that before anyone else does. <laughs> we are becoming community. And we are now the people of God marching on our way. But, but where are we marching? Uh, in many cases, it seems to be to the Metro Cinema in Rupert Street. Uh, but... Let, let us then, let's return to the bishop's submission to the November Synod, uh, which, which Hamish Fraser described it in approaches as a declaration of, of schism. And uh, he, he, uh, I think uh, Hamish has expressed it very accurately. It's a profession of faith by our bishops who seem to think of themselves now as latter-day Dutch bishops. And its underlying message is that the Pope of Rome has no jurisdiction in this realm of England. <laughs> the NC News Service informed us that the English and Welsh bishops report widespread acceptance of Vatican II. 
Well, the Linkside report of the NC News Service were quite correct there. Their report is accurate in every way and does no more than tell the truth. Our hierarchy did report in its submission to the Synod that there's widespread acceptance of Vatican II by the Catholics of this country. But although the fact that the bishops made this statement is correct, their statement itself is totally false. It's a fantasy dreamed up by the ecclesiastical bureaucracy who concocted the report. The English bishops' claim that Vatican II has won widespread acceptance is really pure fantasy because it would be very hard to find an ordinary Catholic who knew anything about the Council at all, let alone one who had actually read any of its documents. Uh, An opinion poll that was uh, held a few years ago found half the Catholics in this country had actually never heard of Vatican II. And uh, I, would be, I would be very happy to stand outside any Catholic church on any Sunday with any bishop and ask the people coming out after Mass which documents of Vatican II they'd read. If the bishop gave me a penny for every Catholic who'd never read one and I gave him a pound for every one who had, I have little doubt which of us would be able to go around to the nearest pub and have a drink on the proceeds. Similarly, the bishop's submission describes English and Welsh Catholics as being fired with ecumenical enthusiasm by the inspiration derived from the documents of Archic. Once again, I'd be delighted to join any bishop outside any church of his choosing and bet pennies against pounds on Catholics who could say what the initials Archic stand for. And I'd be willing to go up to the odds of a penny against five pounds for any Catholic we found who had actually read an Archic document. Archic Boet stands for Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission. The next Episcopal fantasy is that their submission to the Synod represents a consensus of Catholic opinion based on a widespread consultation beforehand. What happened is that of the very few organisations consulted, most provided the answers which the bishops required. It was rather like asking members of the Soviet Politburo whether they thought Lenin was a jolly good chap. And his regime was an improvement on that of the Tsar. And naughty, naughty, our bishops might reply, you're covering up the fact that every Catholic in this country was invited to submit his opinion. Not so, your lordships. I cover it not up. I'm happy to blazon this fact forth to the entire world. But I would suggest to their lordships that with all due respect that perhaps they didn't invite the faithful to make their views known with all the publicity that might have been possible using the services of the modern mass media. I believe I'm correct in stating that there's some sort of Catholic media office which has received vast sums of money extorted from the faithful under the pretense that this office is vital to propagate the faith in the 20th century. Well, what basis, might it be asked, do I have for claiming that our zealous bishops did not make known as widely as possible their invitation for every Catholic to express his views on the state of the church today? My justification is that out of an estimated Catholic population of 4,220,262, only six individuals responded. (laughs) Yes, just six. S-I-X, six. And making use of my trusty calculator... I find this is a response of 0.0001% of the Catholic population. And predictably, our servile Catholic press hail this submission as the most valid expression of the vox populi ever arrived at in the history of consultation. 
The universe hailed the submission with triumphant banner headlines. Vatican II changes welcome. Synod report, voice of the people. All six of them. (laughs) Some people have suggested they set up this headline before the result of the consultation had been uh, announced, but perhaps this might be something of an exaggeration. It's very interesting to note that in 1963, before the renewal began, the universe had a circulation of 311,512. It is now 127,452. In fact, that's wrong. When I wrote this a few days ago, that was before they brought out their new figures, and they're now down to 126,000. Uh, it's interesting that when Christopher Monckton, who was a moderately conservative Catholic, was made editor, he brought the circulation up from 140 to 155,000. And one would imagine anyone today engaged in the religious press would have thought this was marvellous, raised his salary and given him a contract for life, instead of which he was sacked. <laughs> uh, and they're now down to 126,000. Uh, well, that's one of the strangest phenomena of the post-conciliar era is is a kind of death wish among everyone connected with with any any official organization or organ or committee or commission connected with the church. They don't seem to care what happens. They they don't seem as if they were... Every church was totally empty. Every Catholic school was closed down. Every seminary closed as long as they keep on with their current policies. I'll be saying a little more about that later. Anyway, having dealt with the fantasy of consultation, we now come to the fantasy of fantasies. The thesis of the submission is that the bizarre interpretation of the council, which was foisted upon the long-suffering laity by the bishops, or rather by the theological experts who manipulate the bishops, that this interpretation has brought unprecedented benefits to the church in this country. Now, if it were not for the fact that we British, we probably place a somewhat exaggerated uh, emphasis on politeness, we manifest uh, an excessive respect for those in high office, I would have suggested that this wasn't a fantasy but an outright lie. But however, I'll respect convention and say that this claim is just pure, or perhaps not so pure, fantasy. The bishops, of course, they are by no means reticent in listing the benefits which have flowed from their policies. We're putting our cards on the table, they say. You want some benefits? We got some benefits. Uh, You have indeed your lordships, but I notice they all have a common feature. They're all intangible. They are not subject to statistical verification. They might be fact, but then, on the other hand, they might be fantasy. Let's examine some of them. I quote, the renewal of the liturgy has played a large part in helping to achieve a deeper appreciation of the church as the people of God with one mission, but with distinct ministries. Has it indeed? Ho hum. The word of God has been more thoroughly heard as the source of enlightenment and animation of the community of believers And there has been a growing consciousness of the need to relate this word to the circumstances of today. Slowly, a perception is growing of the common dignity and the relationships among God's people. Ho, ho, hum. 
The collegiality of the bishops has helped to promote the notion of the sharing of responsibilities and resources between local churches. The co-responsibility of the faithful has enhanced their sense of involvement in the wider mission of the church. Has it indeed? Ho, ho, hum, hum. I really must make a point here of asking my Irish milkman, Mr. Brendan Murphy, when he delivers my four pints tomorrow, if his sense of involvement in the wider mission of the church has been enhanced by the co-responsibility of the faithful. On the other hand, I don't think I will. This is a lot bigger than I am. (laughs) I think I'd rather have my pints of milk on the doorstep than bashed over my head. So I'll just take the word of the bishops that this is indeed the case. The great progress made in ecumenism has come about partly through renewed ecclesiology. And this advance highlights the centrality of the understanding of the church and the work of both renewal and ecumenism. For example, the final report of Archic and the response of the bishops' conference. Ho, 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 hum, hum. Shall I ask Mr. Murphy about this? I don't think so. The experience brought from a diversity of culture and a variety of methodologies has enriched the contribution of theology locally. Well, that's good news. (laughs) Some of the new movements and styles of spirituality have brought great benefits to the church. For example, prayer groups, new approaches to scripture, and so on. And so on, and so on, and so on. Ho, 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 hum, hum, hum. And these are but a few of the benefits which we are told are being enjoyed by the thrice-blessed Catholics of England and Wales under the prudent, or perhaps I should say prophetic, uh, guidance of their shepherds. Now, conscious of my duty to accept with diffidence and respect the proclamations emanating from the lofty sphere inhabited by their lordships, I shall not for one moment cast the least doubts upon the accuracy of these claims. A ho here and a hum there may escape escape from my lips, but nothing more. Though I realise that this profession of loyalty may not seem very sincere, because if my confidence in the bishops was wholehearted, I'd be willing to test the veracity of their allegations by putting them to Mr. Murphy. I could cite many more of these benefits, but I won't do so. I'll instead quote from an editorial in the tablet, welcoming the bishop's submission with an enthusiasm which exceeds that of the beleaguered members of a wagon train when they hear the bugles of the cavalry and see the encircling Apaches fade away. Vatican II was the high point of their lives. It was the liberating experience that renewed the church and made it relevant. The possibility that the council didn't initiate a renewal is one that they cannot even consider. They are living out that renewal. They read lessons at Mass, distribute Holy Communion, use the pill, take part in discussion groups, belong to countless committees, participate in regular ecumenical lovings. Of course there's a renewal. There has to be a renewal, or their lives for the last 20 years would have been a mockery. They would have been living in an illusion. I can appreciate how these poor trendies must have felt when naughty Cardinal Ratzinger expressed an opinion that there has been no renewal. What a wicked thing to do. Here's just a little of what he had to say. Certainly the results of Vatican II seem cruelly opposed to the expectations of everyone, beginning with those of Pope John XXIII 
and then of Paul VI. Expected was a new Catholic unity, and instead we have been exposed to dissension, which, to use the words of Paul VI, seemed to have gone from self-criticism to self-destruction. Expected was a new enthusiasm, and many wound up discouraged and bored. Expected was a great step forward, and instead we find ourselves faced with a progressive progress of decadence, which has developed for the most part precisely under the sign of a calling back to the council, and has therefore contributed to discrediting it for many. The net result therefore seems negative. I am repeating here what I said ten years after the conclusion of the work. It is incontrovertible that this period has definitely been unfavorable for the Catholic Church. Unfulfilled expectations, self-destruction, discouragement, boredom, decadence, and all this incontrovertible, what scandalous, nonsensical assertions. Let us shed a tear for the poor old trendies. What weeping and wailing there must have been when they read this assessment. Many an analyst must have had to work long into the night, giving them reassurance. But this was not enough. Someone in authority must state categorically that Cardinal Ratzinger was wrong, and who better to do so than their own trendy aging bishops? And this is precisely what they did in their submission to the November Synod. Hail to thee, blithe bishops, Rhapsody the Tablet. Thank you for telling us what we already knew. The renewal is still on. It's official. Uh, the precise words in the effusive editorial which welcomed the bishop's submission in the August the 3rd, 1985 issue began in the most stirring terms possible. Vatican II has not failed. That, I believe, is what is known in the USA as telling it like it is. <laughs> here, here is what the editorial said. The bishops testified to the widespread acceptance and welcome of the teachings of Vatican II among the Catholics of England and Wales and call upon the extraordinary synod to provide a clear and positive reaffirmation of its spirit and decrees and to give a word of encouragement to all who have worked for renewal since the council ended. The document is printed in full in this issue and it speaks for itself. It has a very English tone. If that's true, I'm glad I'm Welsh. But uh, <laughs> it abounds deeply in understatement. It is sober and considered. There is no reflection here of the view of Cardinal Ratzinger. On the contrary, his gloomy assessment of the state of the church today, leading him to deplore the record of the last 20 years and to call for a restoration, is often explicitly opposed. That, by the way, is explicitly opposed by our bishops. What tears of joy must have trickled from many a trendy eye as this editorial was read. The naughty cardinal had received his comeuppance in sober and considered English tones from our sober and considered English bishops, and the worthy chaps received a paternal pat on the back for the, from the tablet for saying just what the tablet wanted them to say. Father Louis Bouillet remarked that many of the bishops of the council had surrendered themselves to the dictatorship of the most incompetent and irresponsible journalists. They said whatever they thought that the journalists wanted them to say and ensured themselves many a reassuring pat upon their episcopal backs for doing so. 
Cardinal Ratzinger has not received so much as a hint of a pat from any official English Catholic journal. How could he, when all these journals have been assuring their readers for the past 20 years that we are in the midst of an absolutely spiffing renewal, and that if we aren't enjoying it, we jolly well ought to be? The tablet had already attacked Cardinal Ratzinger for his pessimism in its July the 13th issue, and I was somewhat surprised to see a dissenting letter in the August the 3rd issue, and very rarely sees a dissenting letter in the tablet. It came from B.A. Santa Maria, who's undoubtedly the greatest Australian layman of the century. It may well be that the editors felt that they couldn't suppress uh, a letter from someone of such eminence, or perhaps they considered that what he had to say was so self-evidently silly that it couldn't upset their readers, especially those who'd just been reassured by their editorial confirming that a renewal is in fact taking place. Mr. Santa Maria pointed out that salvation, this is what Mr. Santa Maria says, salvation demands a minimum communion of the individual with the divine. For this purpose, the church has rightly insisted on personal prayer, together with regular attendance at mass and reception of the sacraments. In default of these habitual practices, individuals, being what they are, simply cease even to think about God in any meaningful way, Theology, however vigorous, which does not contribute to this end, is sterile. He then went on to point out that there appears to have been a widespread decline in these habitual practices since Vatican II. In France, Italy and Holland, over 80% of Catholics do not practice their faith. In his own country of Australia, mass attendance has declined from 53% in 1960 to 25% in 1985. Mr. Santa Maria continued... If we project these figures into the future, short of a religious miracle, uh, what are we entitled to expect ten years from now? Facts cannot be either optimistic or pessimistic. Facts can only be true or false. If these facts are false, let them be shown to be so. If they are true, for God's sake, let us not conclude our assessment with a monumental absurdity that, in proportion as Catholics vote with their feet and empty once full churches, the Holy Ghost is renewing what is visibly ceasing to exist. Well, under normal circumstances, it's the duty of a layman to receive the teaching of his bishops in a humble and docile manner. And this put me in something of a quandary. In the same issue of the tablet, I found my own bishops assuring me in the most collegial manner possible that the renewal is definitely on. Well, in the same issue, Mr. Santa Maria describes the renewal as a monumental absurdity. And try as I might, I could not quite suppress the feeling that there might be something in what Mr. Santa Maria had to say. So overcome by feelings of guilt and angst, I wended my solitary way to the Catholic Central Library and spent an entire day immersed in Catholic directories. Anyone, by the way, who wants to consult the Catholic directories, they're in the public part of the Catholic Central Library, and you don't have to be a member to go and do so. And I'll now try and present with some of my conclusions. What I did was to take the figures for 1984 and then every 10 years back to 1944, and a very, very clear pattern emerges. There is an increase in almost every figure, every year, up to about 1964. 
It isn't always exactly 1964. It, it could be a year or so before or a few years after. And then after that, we get stagnation and decline. Now, let's just take a few examples. Now, let's take uh, marriages, because the uh, future of the Catholic Church depends on the number of marriages. In 1944, there were 30,000. In 1964, this had gone up to 45,000. The latest figure is that there were only 27,000. That figure was for 1981, so it's probably less. So it's, le it's gone down below the 1944 figure. Ordinations, 178 in 1944, 219 in 1954, 230 in 1964, 146 in 1974, 92 in 1984, 152 priests died in that year, by the way. 92 were ordained, 152 died, and one can't get figures on how many left to get married. Mass attendance. Well, in 1954, I'm, I'm leaving out the hundreds and, and the single figures. It was, about, it was 1,886,000. It had gone up to 2,114,000 in 1964. Now it's down to 1,512,000. Baptisms, that's one of the most alarming of the lot. It went up from 71,000 in 1944 to 137,000 in 1964. Now it's down to 71,000 again, right back to the 44 figure. That means every single year, the entire Catholic population of a large city like Birmingham isn't appearing. I, 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 the only one that was still going up, up to about 1974 was the Catholic schools and the number of pupils in them. Because, because of the rising birth rate up to 1964, the children born then were still starting school in those years. But now they, they, they've started to go down now. For instance, there are 944,000 children in Catholic schools in 74. Now there are only 785,000. So we're getting schools closed down. The number of churches and chapels continually went up. That's going down. So a careful examination of these figures permits only one possible conclusion. The many benefits flowing from the councils cited by the English bishops in their submission are all intangible. And in every aspect of Catholic life in England and Wales, subject to statistical evaluation, there has been a dramatic and unprecedented decline. Our bishops have not provided a single fact to pro prove that there's any sort of renewal taking place anywhere within the Catholic Church in this country. The period following the Council has definitely been unfavorable to the Catholic Church. And so, on that pessimistic note, agreeing with the pessimistic conclusion of Cardinal Ratzinger, I'll conclude for the moment. I had put together a few thoughts on what should be done, which perhaps one might bring in later tonight. But I'll stop there, because I'm sure there's some people who want to make some comments. If anyone feels inclined to denounce me, they're, they're very welcome to do so, if they can provide a factual basis for doing so.
May we have the first contribution, please? When we said about the matter of consultation and how everyone was consulted for the Synod document, it was very revealing to read in the Catholic Herald, which reported the very consultation involved, that those groups which were consulted were groups of moderate Catholics. Now, included in those groups of moderate Catholics were such well-known moderate groups as the Catholic Renewal Movement, <laughs> whereas we, as everybody knows, are a group of crackpots, as one bishop was known to put it a few years ago. So one gets the impression that those who are consulted are those defined as moderate. And what it means by moderate are the people who agree with the bishops. There is, but in, in response to that, I will say there is now, uh, and I think it's in response to the criticisms of, of this consultation, they're now having another consultation called the National Forum. And every two weeks in every so-called Catholic paper, questions are put on which everyone really is invited to take part. Uh, it's not really much of a consultation because the questions are so, afraid, are so stupid and phrased in such a way that no, no, no one who, who wasn't an absolute loony would, would answer them. Uh, you're not, per, perhaps later on they might have some better ones, but at the moment no, no one of a traditional viewpoint has an opportunity to comment on anything relevant to what's happened in the church since the council. Uh, for instance, this is this week's uh, of your experience of faith and holiness and prayer. What events or circumstances can you remember in your life which have made you feel very close to God? Did you realize this at the time, or was it only later with hindsight? Did these events lead to any growth in your prayer or in your faith? And they're all questions like this. Uh, this is for the 1986 Synod. Uh, is it 86 or 87? 87. This is for the 1987 Synod. But uh, so far I've seen the first two lots of questions, all of which... Are, are totally irrelevant to what's going on in the church. But it would be worth keeping an eye on these papers uh, just to see if later on a question does come up uh, on which we could make a worthwhile contribution. Because I'm sure if a few dozen of us wrote in, it, it would uh, really, really have quite a big effect. Because some of you might remember years ago, they had that Church 2000 consultation. And they only had about 125 people answered well over half of whom were from the traditionalist viewpoint. Uh, some of you might remember I wrote a little, an article in Christian Order called The Church 2000, Recipe yeah. for Ruin, and then I had it printed as a pamphlet, and I asked people to respond. And they did actually admit that over half the responses they got were clearly based on this pamphlet. But they said they had to be all disregarded because they didn't correspond with the thesis of The Church 2000 document which is consultation Vatican II style, that uh, you only really should respond if you agree with, what, what you, with the point of view being put forward. Yeah. At the back. Yeah. I'm very glad you raised that point because I've just come back from overseas and I wasn't quite aware of what was happening. And I noticed this thing in the Catholic papers, three of which I try to get each week, right? The first thing was in the Catholic Herald, not only did they put the question, rather vague question, which you have to answer, they even suggested in their little article what you shouldn't say. I mean, how anybody could believe that to the laity, right? They then, interestingly, and I noticed this myself, the three addresses given in the universe, the Catholic Care and the Tablet, are actually similar but different addresses. 
so they can filter out the responses. I mean, it is so blatant as to be unbelievable. And this is supposed to be the laity's response to the Synod of the Laity of 1987. It's so blatant as to be incredible. Now, out of interest, we know that this campaign uh, that Mrs. Gillig has been having for the last three or four years has eventually come to, as it were, a final decision. Last year, the Department of Social Responsibility produced a booklet called Moral Issues on this topic, which was to a certain extent orthodox, but in the middle of it, there were these, as some people describe time bombs, expressions which were actually seen by the BMA as to be able to give a guarded welcome to this document. It was a shocking document. And as a concerned doctor and a parent and a Catholic, I wrote to 33 archbishops and bishops in this country, including the apostolic delegate. I received a long letter. I typed a long letter pointing out the various aspects of it. I received 11 replies, six one-line thank yous, five reasonable and two helpful replies. That was the concern of the hierarchy of England and Wales to a concerned, educated Catholic. Now, I think this particular issue of the national form is nothing more than a mere distraction. It's a disgrace, in fact, asking people to answer vague, long-winded questions in two weeks' time. It's not possible. So this, to me, just typifies what is going on. Can I add a correction to that? They didn't give you two they gave you a date by which to reply, and since you can only get the Catholic paper in our district on a Saturday, it had got to be on their desk for consideration the following Thursday. And I wrote to them and told them this, and they said they didn't want opinion. Only bishops have opinion. They wanted experience. And not only that, they didn't want any demands. They wanted you to give in inverted commas. No giving, no de- you, you must not give, you must give, and no demanding. We all of us remember the consultation for the 1980 NPC, and we should be familiar enough by now with the complete contract that these consultations are. You may remember, for the NPC, we were invited to attend small parish discussion groups, and I said I should, felt I ought to do so. But a friend of mine, who has since been made a judge of this country, was very shrewd indeed. He said, don't waste your time. It was a complete farce. I expect the final reports are already in draft. Um, so we don't have to kill ourselves. Uh, Over there, please. Michael you spoke of the decline, rightly, but what does seem to be increasing, and I'd like to know the background of these places. You've only got to read the, um, the Herald or, or the Universe all these pastoral centres and places for courses. They seem to be springing up all over the place. And now who is financing this? You are. You are. <laughs> but, I mean, you're talking about decline, obviously. I mean, uh, the church must be pretty much in the red in this country. I mean, I know the Catholic Church is, is always in debt in one way or another. But, I mean, who... Is there a, a certain a centre point to saying, right, we must buy certain buildings? I mean, these things must cost thousands and thousands. And yet they seem to be able to import all these theologians from all over the place and get the laity, of course, to go there, to be brainwashed yet again. Is, is there the worst of the... Pl- no. And there, if you, know, if, you, if you see what no. I mean. To, to a certain extent, 
the, the bishops aren't anywhere near as hard up as they'd like us to think. Because in a lot of dioceses, you see, every time they close down a school or, or a convent or sell land, they get in a lot of capital. Because the church in this country is now largely living on its capital, not just its financial capital by selling off assets, but on its spiritual capital, and that the people, this is a, an ironic thing, and it must have been dreamed up by Satan, because it really has, a, one marks, an archangelic sense of irony in this. The people financing this destruction of Catholicism are the people who were brought up before the council, who are still going to church because they were taught that's their duty and putting their money in the collection every week. And their, their, their giving is being used to finance the destruction of the church. But for some of these particular, for, for these commissions and pastoral centers, there's a collection taken every year, which is called the National Catholic Fund. And you'll find your parish priests make appeals for you to contribute to it. And I remember years ago when it first began, I said to my parish priest, well, I'm not giving a penny to that because I know what it's going to be used for. He said, well, I totally agree with you. It's absolutely pernicious. And I couldn't in conscience ask anybody to give to it. But on the other hand, I can't not do so because it's done in the form of a tax on the parish. And there's a levy on me for every adult parishioner in, in the parish. And if the people don't give it, I have to give it all out of my own pocket. Actually, I think he could have been a little braver and refused to take the collection and refused to send the money from his own pocket. The only priest I know actually did that was Father John Flanagan in Polgate, who refused to take the collection of the National Catholic Fund and refused to send in the levy. If, you see, that, it, it, I suppose it's easy to criticize parish priests, but you see, if, if a few hundred or a few thousand of them had said, we're not going to do this, the bishops couldn't have done anything. But that's another way, you see, that the uh, again, it shows an almost satanic sense of irony that it's by the obedience of the best priests that the church is, is, is being destroyed because they've taken their oath of obedience to the bishop, so they'll go on sending in money to the bishop even though they actually know and many of them complain uh, of the fact that this, bishop is, that this money is going to be used to destroy the church. And of course, many of these pastoral centres now they're being used literally as brainwashing centres for priests. There's one in London, Colney. I believe where almost every priest in Westminster is having to go. Uh, I know one priest who went there, and he said he, by a lot of prayer and penance, he just about managed to hang on to his faith uh, through, through, through this course. Actually, he died a couple of months afterwards. I don't know if it had anything to do with it. But gradually, all the priests of the country are being submitted uh, to the, these intensive courses in these pastoral centers. And uh, some of them, I think, are being converted to the new way of thinking. A lot, I think, have just given up. They, 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 they just carry on. They say the mass in the morning, and perhaps go out and play golf. Or in America, they have a very big problem of alcoholism among priests. I think a lot of them just sit down all day and drink and try and forget everything and wait till they can retire. But it's now, I know in America, getting much harder to retire because they have so few uh, priests come out of the seminaries. I, I, I did do a set of statistics like this. I haven't brought them with me for, from the USA. And uh, they're far worse than they are in this country. And, of course, in a country like Holland, they're far worse still. I hope that when the Pope 
went to Holland this year, he saw a real example of the spirit of Vatican II in practice there, and I, I hope if he had any illusions, he's now lost them. Mr. Fraser, please. Manager, 
the, the papers changed its uh, editor as often as the editor changed his shirt. But the business manager who's presided over this continual uh, process of bankruptcy, he still remains in charge. But he sent a letter, not only to every parish priest, but to every priest in Scotland, assuring them that the Catholic hell was owned, was Catholic owned, that 51% shares were owned by uh, himself and Sir Harold Hood. Now, I no doubt that is true. But I mean, who's interested in who owns a majority of worthless shares in a company that's obviously kept uh, so that a voice can be, uh, can be expressed within the Catholic Church? And the universe, I understand, is ruled by the, the Liverpool Victoria. The, 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 as for the tablet, well, obviously it's non-viable economically. I don't know who supports it, keeps in existence. But I mean, these, these, these are, we no longer have a Catholic presence in any sense of the term, apart from a sort of Sam's death figure. And they've been encroaching everywhere. One of the first things that was done to buy all the publishing companies, uh, then to, to extinguish any expression of Catholic opinion. And uh, as an example of how the process goes on, in Ireland they had the Irish Catholic until recently. It was bought up by the Catholic hell. Now there's nothing in Ireland apart from a couple of Samizdat generals. And the, 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 full, the full malevolent extent of the process has got to be studied to be understood. Could, could, could I just make a little response to that, which is, uh, as Hamish says, the extent to which they exercise their censorship. Now, I think it was two weeks ago, Archbishop of Fever came to London and gave a conference. Now, can quite understand. There are probably a lot of people here who don't approve of Archbishop of Favour or his approach, which they're quite entitled to do. But just because you don't approve of someone doesn't mean you should tell lies about them. And the tablet uh, sent a reporter along and mentioned some uh, alleged anti-Semitism in the lecture which he gave and said this anti-Semitism could be explained by his Action Francaise background. Well, actually, there was no anti-Semitism in the speech at all. He was, as a matter of fact, quoting from approaches in a supplement <laughs> in which Hamish had criticised a document, uh, an ecumenical document concerning the Jews, in which it gives the impression that the old covenant is still in being. Uh, and the, the very basis of our faith is that the old covenant has been abrogated and the new covenant uh, in the testament of our Lord's blood has been instituted. And Archbishop of Fever gave that as an example of the extent to which uh, ecumenia could go. So it wasn't anti-Semitic at all. He wasn't criticizing the Jews. He was criticizing the Unity Secretariat. And secondly, if he had said something anti-Semitic, it couldn't have been explained by his Action Francaise background because he never had anything to do with Action Francaise. So I wrote a very polite letter to the tablet pointing this out to them. I got a letter back from the editor today saying that he thanked me for my letter and all such letters are taken into account editorially. And of course, he, he wouldn't print it, which I, I didn't expect them to do. Some of you might have seen a similarly disgraceful thing in the universe recently by their Dubliner correspondent, who said the most outrageous things about Archbishop of Fevre and refused to correct any of them. Now, I notice in the same issue, they have a piece about Hans Kung, which, if excuse me, I'll read read part of it to you. It's praising Hans Kung. He's written 
a document about the synod. He's afraid it's going to be too conservative. And the way a paper like the tablet treats the pronouncement of Hans Kung, it's as if it's an, a papal encyclical. And they praise him for being outspoken, perhaps a little bit too outspoken, a little bit too strong in his terms. But nonetheless, it all has to be said. Now, you see, here's the idea, the concept of these liberal idea of a freedom of speech. Now, it's all right for Hans Kung to say that, but anything Archbishop Lefebvre says is anathema. Now, I'd like to read you a little part of this about Hans Kung, but instead of everywhere it says Hans Kung, I'm going to say Archbishop Lefebvre. And it's interesting to think about why the tablet would never repeat this. Uh, well, say, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre uh, the Swiss theologian, which he isn't, of course, is, is brave and rudely outspoken. He has done outstanding work for the church, and it is a matter for great regret that his license to teach as a Catholic theologian has been withdrawn. He believes that at Rome there is now a fear of freedom, and he has therefore decided to speak out about the way the church is going, which, of course, is just what Archbishop Lefebvre has done, after a long silence. He has felt driven to do so by the approach of the extraordinary synod called to examine the results of Vatican II. His major article, which we appear on a latter page, is a cry from the heart and should be read in that way. The manner in which he makes his points might not have commended itself to such as Newman, who said some of the same things in a different way, which is nonsense. Uh, <laughs> or indeed to the bishops of England and Wales, whose recent submission in the preparation for the synod contained in code somewhat similar sentiments. But the substance of his remarks is always rigorously argued and of inescapable importance. It is good that there is someone like Archbishop Lefebvre to raise the issue so starkly. It is useless to pretend that there is not genuine conflict in the church about the way that Vatican II is being put into practice. It is a disservice to try to paper over the cracks. Archbishop Lefebvre forces others to stop and consider exactly where they stand. Readers will have to make up their own minds about how far they follow Archbishop Lefebvre's analysis. <laughs> and we ourselves are not uh, in agreement with all his positions, uh, and so on and so on. But you see, they would never allow Archbishop Lefebvre, they would never print anything he said, never comment on anything he said, and they even print lies about him and won't let it be corrected. Uh, and yet, I'm sure they actually feel... Uh, Nothing incongruous about that. And they really believe they are committed to freedom uh, and open expression and that this great renewal... Uh, oh, yes, this is the big thing. But for those who fear that some of the impetus of Vatican II is being lost and who believe that the future depends on keeping the conciliar perspective are bound to hope that Hans Kung's warnings will be listened to and his appeal heeded. Uh, Yes, if actually, if you read Hans Kung's thing, he's obviously suffering from monomania. It does, I don't know if anyone has actually read it. It reads like a papal encyclical. Well, that concludes uh, the session because I'm afraid the dinner bell has gone. Uh, after, immediately after Compline, uh, we will resume. And could I ask you now to join me in thanking Michael Davis?